Hello. 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 What's happening? I hear some jazzy music somewhere. I was watching American Splendor. Oh, good. American Splendor. You always do your homework so well, Craig. He really does, Ryan. That's not even true. You and I are It is, though. And you watch these movies, and sometimes we don't even get around in giving them them much attention, the movies that you watch. I feel bad about that. Well, half the reason I like doing this is it it gives me an excuse to rewatch old movies or ones that I missed. Yeah, that's good. That's so smart. I feel like a slacker. <laughs> Why? Because I don't watch the movies. I mm. no, I don't. Sometimes I do. It depends. It's not as important for these years because we all kind of remember them anyway. Yeah, but it's fun, right? Yeah. It's fun yeah. to visit them anyway. You know, I think it's great. I would love to have. Um, although I just watched Lost in Translation recently, so um, I didn't feel like I needed to really watch it again, but. Right. I liked these re- recent years. I kind of like to watch some of the movies over again that I didn't, that I had, and to see if my opinion of them has changed. And yeah, exactly. It, it usually has. It, it usually, I think more of the movie now than I did at the time. Right. I'm running into that too. Not always. I'm, I'm just usually really gripey sometimes about when I first see a movie. I can find a, I used to find a lot of fault with the movies, but not so much when I in in retrospect. Hmm. Especially when they get caught up in the Oscar race, it's hard to judge them fairly, I think. But to see them outside of that bubble, it, it, you can be a little more fair to them, I think. At least mm-hmm. I can. Yeah. Mo- movies tend to, uh, the Oscar race tends to ruin them for me, usually. Like, there are some movies I'll just never watch again, ever. Like The Wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were kind of invested in the wrestler and, and yes. in uh, Mickey was, that year, and so that was a disappointment. That was a and, you know I'll probably never I have I don't have any desire to watch Milk again, and I was so pro Milk that year. That was the thing is like that kind of thing like when you it come just, out of it and you know that you made the wrong choice, you know like that particularly like I think Sean Penn really did deserve to win in retrospect, really deserved to win for Milk, you know. But I just, you're right, I got so invested in the Mickey Rourke story that year that it just kind of ruined it all for me. Back here in 2003, we're still in the years when it didn't, it wasn't that bad because I wasn't into advocacy so much, you know. Mm -hmm. So I didn't put myself out there like that and it up for ridicule and it wasn't, it wasn't as. Wasn't as personal. Wasn't as personal, but it wasn't as humiliating the day after. Right. More. Because if you don't put yourself out there, no one really cares what you personally thought but if you put your personal feelings out there for all to see then you have to kind of eat shit the next day you know yeah yeah i was i was i was really at first on oscar night this year i thought that it was going to be so grand that that so many of our our wishes and dreams came true but then i was so surprised the week afterwards that i didn't that that elation evaporated so fast for me you know Mm -hmm. because i think we were just so exhausted by it and I think that's like that every year. I think it was like that the year when, uh, even when No Country for Old Men won, especially when the Coens accepted their Oscar and just kind of like shrugged it off basically as soon as they got them and didn't even, they weren't even excited to get the Oscars. Yeah. So why should we be so excited, right? I think it's just at the end of the day, it's not really, I hate to say this, but because here we are, 62 yeah. podcasts <laughs> later. Welcome to Oscar <laughs> Podcast, by the way. You know. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from com, and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com. Actually, Craig Kennedy's from AwardsDaily.com by now, isn't he? <laughs> he's sort of. Right. He's the TV guy. So yeah. uh, TV at, guy at Awards Daily, but also living in cinema. But at the... the 
the thing is, is at the end of the day, it just doesn't really mean much, you know, I don't think, to win an Oscar. It doesn't really do what you hope it will do. All, all it is is a bunch of, you know, middle-aged white guys voting for something. You know, it's it's their opinion. So, it, it, it though it's, it's we make a big deal about the unfairness of people not winning and how great it is when Martin Scorsese finally wins or when, you know, 12 Years a Slave wins his picture, but... What does it really mean when you boil it down? It's a gold statue, you know, and a bunch of people voting on something. It's not. I'm usually every year I'm really, really happy for two or three people. And the other people, I'm just kind of like, I, I really, it doesn't matter to me one way or the other. The, either they've already won before or, or, the, or I figure they'll win again. Or, or I, I just don't, don't really, I don't care that much about the other categories so much. And it's not always just the big categories I care about. Sometimes it's, it's uh, cinematography or yeah, something, exactly. you know. It's weird how you can get invested in the littlest categories, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. People just think it's so funny when you bring it up because nobody really cares on the outside about live action short. Right, but if you're in the race, mm-hmm. you've watched the shorts, and you do get invested in them. And they're often the most exciting <laughs> race, mm-hmm. the shorts, because the films are all so good. There's not a dog in the bunch, usually, you know. It's so That's the, one of the very greatest things about about uh, working on an Oscar site, is to be able to see the shorts. Because always, all through my life growing up, I never got to see any of them. Even years after, or a year after, or years and years after, there's there's dozens and dozens of shorts that I've never seen. Hundreds that I've never seen mm-hmm. and never will have a chance to see. But we get to see them. That's fantastic. Yeah, and they're, they're making great strides in trying to get those shorts to, to, to audiences. You know, they, they mm-hmm. open them in theaters and they have a publicist and, you know, they try to, pub, you know, make them a bigger deal than they used to. It really did. Live action short was always our big joke. It was our punchline for, like, the categories that were really hard that nobody cared about. But now it really, it really has changed a lot. People really do think because so many people are focused on the Oscar race, they're more invested in each category. I mean, even the sound categories, you know, are, are thought mm-hmm. through. Well, I think we we know more about the categories now, and it is really it is true when you see them, you really can d- discern which are the best. It's pretty hard to guess which are the best just by going by the title, right? But a lot of people do that. A lot of people do that. Just just look at, and I think even maybe some Oscar voters do it because they can't see all the shorts either. I don't think so. But that's ridiculous that, that they you can. can vote like that. They don't. But yeah, right. They can, but they don't. But once, when you see all five, when you see all 15 of the shorts, you can really tell which ones are the best. There's no, sometimes there's no, no doubt. There's no question. I still can't every year. Invariably, the one that I like best loses and the one that I like least wins. So <laughs> I've kind of given up on it. Maybe I'm just stupid. No. No, you're not. But it is. But it's easy to get emotionally involved with some, with one or two of them that don't strike the same chords with other people. Because um, just because they they are going to touch touch you in ways that they're not going to touch someone else, right? And but they're um, all good usually. Like they're they're all five really good in the short categories. Yeah, um, there's never a dog in them. Mm-hmm. There's never a dog among them. The thing is, is since they changed the rules to the honor voting system now, I mean, really, what you see with when, when people reveal their ballots, which they did last year isn't so much an indication of how the awards are going to go because you can't single out one person against 6,000 voters. But what you can see is how a lot of them skip categories that they don't feel qualified to vote for. However, what a lot of them did this year was they picked 
20 feet from stardom because the publicity was so good and because that category has now been freed up to the honor system, meaning they don't have to watch all the other movies. They can go to a Harvey Weinstein party with all these great singers and have a great time and vote for that movie, even if they never saw Act of Killing or any of the other documentaries. Mm, yeah. So, but that's, that's too bad. I liked the old rule better where they were forced to watch them all. Me too. I agree. And when they're forced to watch them all, they vote, actually. This way, you saw a lot of people just skipping categories. Like, I never saw all the animated movies, so I'm just not going to vote in animated. They just sort Although of the, and the, choose. The other side of the coin for that are the people who who did have the time to watch all of them and who could prove that they watched all of them are not often uh, the people well, what the rumor was that those were the the re- retired people the people who didn't have anything else better to do but just sit around and watch all the movies you know so they were not always maybe the best qualified to be choosing the best but it's better i do gr- I agree that it's better than not seeing them at all yeah they do i can tell that the ones that i know the academy members i know they tend to be pretty diligent about seeing the at least the best pictures yeah but beyond that, I have no idea. I mean, it's hard enough just to get journalists to watch them all, critics. You know, if they're not seated in front of a screening, it's really hard to get someone to put in a screener of a movie nobody wants to see. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, a lot of people probably didn't want to watch 12 Years a Slave, but they voted for it anyway. You know, which... Uh, what I really liked, and I didn't, it's not that, that I really liked it, but I mean, I did really respect and I really understood that we, one of the Academy members who spoke up about 12 Years a Slave said that he started watching it and he saw enough of it to know that it was better than anything he'd seen that year, but he didn't need to watch the whole thing. I thought that was really honest and, and, and pretty great attitude. You know, he had seen enough of, of Lupita Nyongo to know that he hadn't seen any other best supporting actress surpass what she did. And that was enough for him. He didn't have to watch it all the way through to the end. Hmm. I, I, at least, uh, at least he was honest about that. Yeah. And, it, and at least he gave it a chance, you know, at least he, he dive he dove into it and, and saw what it was all about. Right. Right. I don't know. I mean, it, that they watched Argo all the way through and liked it and voted for it. Does that make it any better of a winner than if they didn't watch Twelve Years a Slave? And didn't no, I don't. I don't think it makes it any better. Me either. I, I, not at all. Me no. either. In fact, it's like it doesn't make it a better movie. You know, they picked. I think they picked the best film yeah. of the films. I, I really am so proud of the Academy this past year. I thought they did a, a really good job overall. Only a couple things that I have, yeah, you know, qualms about or questions about. Mm. Just. After all of our complaining year after year after year about what it, how, how they don't do a good job, I thought they really came through this past year. Mm. I'm sleepy this year. Can you guys tell that I'm like I'm like slow talking and slow to put my thoughts together? You don't sound like no. You sound fine. Okay, good. Sorry, Craig I mean, sounds I'm still a little sluggish. <laughs> Craig's a little quiet. You're a little quiet. I'm a little subdued. That's okay. We can get through it though. Um, yeah, okay. We'll do our best. The only thing is, this is not like a really exciting year, is it? 2003, and we've had several readers on the site, too, and in the preview for the podcast say the same thing, that this, compared to, especially compared to 2002, which was a great year with maybe 15 or 20 fantastic movies, a lot of people are having trouble putting a, a top 10 list together for 2003. And I, I wonder sometimes if when um, when a movie like um, Return of the King sweeps and wins everything. If it's not often a reflection, more of a reflection of of 
the strength of the competition or the lack of strength of the competition more than it is the strength of the movie that wins so many. And I kind of feel like that was going to win anyway, just because they were rewarding him for the other two movies as well. Then just yeah. the enormity of the achievement and the amount of money that it made. And so I'm actually, mm-hmm. I'm actually a little bit relieved that it's kind of a crummy year because it, it, the loss in translations is, is leaps and bounds above it in terms of being a good movie. It's not the kind of movie I would necessarily assume is going to win anyway. So I, I don't feel too raw about Lord of the Rings w- winning, even though in retrospect it was not even close to my favorite movie of the year. Yeah, we don't have Michael on uh, this week, but Michael would be the one really strong champion of Lord of the Rings. He loved that series. Um <laughs> I loved it, too, at the time. I loved the books when I was a kid, and I thought the movies were about as perfect an adaptation of those books as you could possibly do. They're, 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 they're true to the books, and yet not for everybody, obviously, but for a lot of people, they still make entertaining movies. But I've kind of soured on Peter Jackson, I think, and it was The Hobbit that did it. <laughs> the Hobbit has pissed me off so badly, <laughs> that, and the fact that he's tried to turn The Hobbit into Lord of the Rings... <laughs> Uh, that it soured me on him, and I kind of don't ever want to see Lord of the Rings again. <laughs> I, I saw the first Hobbit movie, and I vowed never to go back. I did the same thing with the Transformers. The like second I, Hobbit was like being in fucking prison for three hours. It was awful. First one was terrible. The worst. I could have read the entire book in the time that it took me to watch just the second part of the goddamn <laughs> Hobbit. It was awful. The worst. No, no. <clears throat> that's Hated. just that's just that's that's you know ego run amok that ego and just he's lost his mind there's there's no reason he's general kurtz i i understand it's it takes place in the same world and has some of the same characters but it's just a totally different story and there was no need to blow it up like that it goes against everything that's good about the book yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to. I I like Peter Jackson well enough, so I don't want to blame him entirely for it. I also think that probably the studio is saying, "How can can we milk this for three movies?" Because you know that they want to do that. They want to make it uh, eight hundred million dollars for three different times instead of doing it just once. You know, if they can if they can do that, why wouldn't they want to try that? I think it's them, but it's him because what they wanted probably wanted him to do was keep the movie short. And he said, look, there's all this stuff I want to do. Him and Jim Jim Cameron and George Lucas, they're just little boys with a lot of toys and they get out of control with their toys. And it's really, he just wants to play with the cool shit, you know, just like Jim Cameron with Avatar. It's like they've lost sight of the story. The story's secondary to what they can do with the visual effects. And they're so into it. And they have carte blanche. And I don't know how many director, geek directors like that would turn down the opportunity to have an unlimited budget and just play with all the state of the art special effects and do things that have never been done before. I, I fully believe that they're they're both they're all just George Lucas, forget about him, whatever happened to him, who knows? But they're just enthralled with the magic of this new medium. You know, this new and the technology. The technology Yeah, remember that in the first episode of The Hobbit, everyone couldn't stop talking about the forty eight frames per second, how that was oh. just gonna revolutionize everything. And then after people saw it and hated it, you never heard anybody talking about forty eight <laughs> frames per second anymore. It's like almost it was embarrassing they didn't want to mention that. But that they was still released the second one that way though. Mm, I guess yeah. they did. I'm sure I guess they did, but people they really stopped making that a selling point and did any? You did either of you see the forty? I did. It was second? one of the worst. I did oh. the first time I saw. I waited until the thing came out on cable the first time because I kind of knew that I was going to hate it, and I actually didn't mind the first one that bad. But the second one I saw because I wanted to see, in retrospect, what the forty-eight frames per second was all about. And what did you think of it? It was fine. 
Yeah, it wasn't fine. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. All you can say like, is that it's fine. It what is like, different about it? To What's me, so it was like it? if you take home a, a new, brand new flat screen TV, which I've done this twice now, not me, but someone I know had took, taken home a flat screen, and I took home my own, and, and it's the way that the flat screen looks when you first set it down and start to watch movies on it. It's like it looks like high def video. That's des- it's it's what it is. Is it's designed for watching sports, for watching football, and mm-hmm. so it's really you know the 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 uh, the lighting is really high. The, you don't get a lot of shadows and a lot of grain, and everything is smooth. It's smoothed, motion smoothing, mm-hmm. and that's what this movie looks like at forty eight frames per second. The first one, anyway. Maybe they've improved it on the second. I don't know, but the, what it did do was on some of the visual effects it looked awesome like on the the dragon or smaug or whatever mm. <laughs> smaug's eye it mm. looked really good and that was that was the only way you could have seen that visual effect looking that good is if you used that technology or 48 fr- frames per second but the rest of it looked to me horrible just it was an utter failure but i would say 50% of the people i saw it with agreed with me and 50% thought it was the coolest thing they'd ever seen. And people just divided up. Me, I had to immediately change my settings on my TV to get it to look like a regular movie. I, I remember that when you first got your first flat screen TV, I was on the email with you that night. We were trying to figure out. You were you were you're panicking in a way. You you yeah. thought you was you hated it, right? Yeah. It you thought terrible. it was ruined every movie that you tried to put it, play on it. You didn't like it at all. No, the it was way awful. that it looked. But and I think it, you're, it. it just the settings were wrong. Yeah, you can adjust it to make it look yeah. not like that yeah. anymore. But the lot- factory sets them for morons who like the bright colors and pretty pictures. Mm-hmm. And they're set yeah. too to be in the to be to look good in the showroom where the there there's too much light and and t- in uh, electronics store it, showrooms, yeah. it looks like you know dark shadows. It looks like a like a video, like the movie is a video. Mm-hmm. I see what you mean, yeah. And like you said, that's a great analogy, and I'm sure that it's absolutely true about sports because sports are everything's happening so fast, and yeah. when you try to slow it down frame by frame, there's blurring in the frames because I've done that before, you know, step by right. step on on. Um, to on Blu-ray, you know, watching a Blu-ray step by step, uh, frame yeah. by frame, you can see the blurring. But so, with 48 frames per second, is going to eliminate all that. But uh, yes, that's, it's, but and, that's, and that's it. It's moving in that direction. So people like me who adjust their TVs to look the old way, we're going to get left behind. And what's going what's to take a place are people who a don't care that it doesn't mm-hmm. look like cinema anymore because they're used to this new thing, and mm-hmm. b movies are going to have to start and cinema is going to have to stop trying to look like cinema and start looking like this new weird new like really super high def video digital right one thing that was good about it is that it improved the 3d in a couple of ways that have always bugged that has always bugged me about 3d um it what the the image was brighter it wasn't as murky as it usually is with 3d and the a lot of times when there's there's fast action in 3d it strobes and this cured that, but yeah. I hate 3D anyway, so it's sort of it's sort of a fix for a problem I wish would just go away anyway. So exactly, but these guys are into 3D, and it's here to stay for them. So this is the direction that it's going to be moving in, and and this is sadly the direction that film is moving in. Um, I really want to see Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson. Oh so. yeah, that's just my number one wish on my top of my wish list right now is to see that. I know, me too. Craig, did you see that in Cannes? No. No. Was it at Cannes last year? Yeah. No kidding. Wow. It's a long time. I remember that being there. I'm pretty sure it was, unless I'm getting it mixed up with something else. Uh, There was another movie about skin. What was that other movie with skin in the title from last year? 
It seems like I heard of it, like it came out because it got bad reviews under the skin, you know? Maybe it was a, maybe it was, maybe it played at Telluride or somewhere else? Maybe, yeah, maybe. Seems to me that there was another movie with skin in the title that, that, that I, I can't put my finger on it. Huh. Well, maybe Under the Skin was going to play in Cannes and then it didn't in the end. I, I think that, that it was being predicted to play and then it didn't. Everybody was excited about it. And then when people started to see it, they kind of gave it bad reviews. But now it, f- it feels like it's starting to get re-examined and people are saying, no, it's actually a good movie. Yeah, it debuted at the Telluride Film Festival on August 29th. Okay, so I missed it there. Yeah, and I think the word there was that it wasn't that good. But now it's getting it's getting much more um, interest and, and acclaim. If you go to Metacritic and look at the reviews, it's it's got some amazing reviews, and they're all like scores of a hundred, you know. So people are really liking it more than they did. But there, I mean, there are those bad reviews. Like Lou Luminick just dismissed it as um, pretentious and boring. Heck. Hmm. <laughs> but I'm dying to see it, though. What's that? I'm dying to see it. Him loving it or him hating it makes me think it'll probably be awesome. <laughs> well, speaking of Scarlett Johansson and Under the Skin, um, it's been been kind of an interesting year for her. She's she's enjoying a, a sort of her own genre, as it were, and doing it. I mean, yes, she's working within the superhero because she's in Captain America, but she's doing Under the Skin. She did her, and now she's coming out with. Lucy, and in, in these instances, she's playing these kind of. Well, I guess you can you could include Captain America, as she's Black Widow in that, but she's playing these sort of superhuman, super sexy, you know, forces to be reckoned with, and all of these. And I just think it's interesting that that that's what what people have decided to do with Scarlett Johansson because it's true that she is almost overwhelming in how pretty she is, and how sexy she is, and how smart she is, you know. It's it's almost like you just can't believe that this person exists. So, almost like she's another step of the evolution, right? She's yeah. the next step in, in, in uh, evolution of women. Like remember they made that movie with Ursula Andress called um, is it called She? Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like that. Like they would cast her in that movie because they're just like I can't believe this woman exists. But anyway, so back in two thousand three, she kind of came into her own with Lost in Translation. Which I think we'd all agree is is the film we think is the best of that year. I would. I don't know about Ryan. I would say for me personally, it's my second favorite movie of the year. I, I think probably uh, Master and Commander is probably my my number one favorite movie of the year. But but uh, Lost in Translation, a close second. Hmm. I might have to put Mystic River right up there with Lost. In, that's tough. It's a tough one. I think they're both really really good. But I won't be an asshole and say that I hated both Mystic River and Master and Commander. I'll just stay quiet. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, go ahead, Greg. Be an asshole. You have to. You have to say it, Greg. No. no nobody cares what I think. <laughs> That's not true. God. What's that? That's uh, not I'm true. Just, I'm, I, yeah, I, I, sometimes I just feel like I'm too negative about stuff, and so I'd rather just stay quiet. I did a good job of that last week. Well, it, it, I think it's good to, to at least, you know, Oh, you mean because you don't want people to complain at you in the comments? Or no, not so much that. I don't care what people think, but I just I don't like to be a downer. You know, sometimes I I I prefer, I prefer hearing people talk about how much they love something. I don't well, I don't want to hear some cranky old bastard saying how much something sucks. I guess I think so. the reason that I liked Mystic River is because I was I was waiting for for Clint Eastwood to to do to follow up something for Unforgiven that would match Unforgiven, and I thought that Mystic River came really close. 
then everything he's done since Mr. Quiver, I've been so disappointed in. I mean, every single movie he's done since Mr. Quiver, I've have hated. <laughs> really, I've not liked at all. And but but I really did feel like that that Mr. Quiver um, validated his the acclaim that he got for Unforgiven. Mr. Quiver was you know this kind of weird. Um, I think it's written by the same guy who wrote The Town. Dennis Lehane. No, Dennis, Dennis Lehane wrote. Um, uh, wrote um, Shutter Island and some other... Um, he didn't write The Town? He wrote, he wrote uh, Gone Baby Gone or whatever oh, that Gone. Um, yeah, Gone Baby Gone. other Affleck movie was, yeah. the, the younger Affleck, Casey. Yeah, oh. Chuck Hogan wrote The Town, and it was called um, Prince of the... It was called City of Thieves or something like that. It wasn't called The Town, but it was. But Chuck Hogan wrote the novel for The Town. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Mystic River, Dennis Lehane, and um, Sean Penn won an Oscar for Mystic River for kind of a semi-small part. The only Oscar story to talk about in 2003 because it was really one of those years where everybody knew how it was going to go because Lord of the Rings Return of the King was coming to collect, you know, cash that check that it, it wrote with Fellowship of the Ring and had three Best Picture nominations for all three of its films. I don't think any movie has ever accomplished that. The closest second to this would be Godfather, which had... Actually, Godfather does match it because it was nominated for... Godfather 3 was also nominated for Best Picture. So those are probably the only two where the three sequels were all nominated for Best Picture. Return of the King made like a shitload of money, ridiculous amount of money. And it's one of the few Oscar movies that actually clean sweeped or swept however you say that Mm -hmm. it won every oscar it was nominated for and that was one of the big surprises of the night the other thing was that a lot of people were sort of invested in bill murray winning for lost in translation not just because his character is so likable but just sort of love for bill murray and that he was a comedian who turned serious and i still think he deserved the oscar that year myself Sean Penn was way overdue by this point. It was it's the same as we were talking about with Nicole Kidman because he ended up, you know, really deserving it for Milk. But by this time, by this performance, people were just finally like, you know, when is Sean Penn finally going to win an Oscar? The other thing was Bill Murray, um, everybody said, had an attitude problem, quote unquote, and that nobody liked him apparently in Hollywood, that he has a reputation of being kind of an asshole. He's difficult. Difficult, quote unquote. And so... They vote for who they like, and and Sean Penn had been um, convinced by Clint Eastwood to to go on the campaign trail that year with Mystic River. He'd always been someone who thumbed his nose at Oscar, and that's why people said he never won. And they were saying that he was just too aloof. He thought he was too good for everybody else, and and that's why in all these years he hadn't yet won an Oscar. And so this this year he actually put on a suit, and he shook everybody's hand, and he had made appearances, and he was really happy and you know, um, lovable throughout that, that run. And, and people say that's why he, that's why he ended up winning. And you have the snowball effect too, where you, where he was nominated for dead men walking and Sweden low down. And I am Sam. And there were people every year, every one of those years who probably voted for him, who thought that he should have won and who were, who kept, who told themselves that the next time he's nominated, I'm going to vote for him again. And so that, that builds up, a a snowball that, that Bill Murray didn't have because it was, he had never been nominated before. Right. Right, he didn't, you're right. But nonetheless, he was being predicted to win, and, and everybody sort of sentimentally loved him and wanted to see him win for that. But it's hard to compare the two. Um, kind of a weak year when you had Johnny Depp, <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean, which is like, really? 
And uh, Ben Kingsley in House of Fog, who was very good. And, and then um, Jude Law in Cold Mountain. We have to discuss Cold Mountain because that was one of the few questions we actually got in the comment section of our podcast post preview. Um, they, wanted to, they wanted to ask us why it was that Cold Mountain um, came in with so many nominations. Does it lead the nominations? I think it does. And mm-hmm. when... Um, it didn't even get nominated for Best Picture, I know. but it got a crap load of, of all the other nominations. How could it lead the nominations if it didn't even get a Best Picture nomination, though? Let me look and see how many nominations it got. Uh, no, it's not possible that it led. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. No, no, no. Lord of the Rings had 11, so it didn't lead. Still, it had a ton, and I think the reason is that it's a huge downer. It's a really nice-looking, well-acted, well-crafted, giant downer. Yeah, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I, I, some of the best movies end on a on a hard note, but if the hero of your story is going to die in the end, it it makes it hard, and it it uh, was just bleak and pretty much uncompromising. Right, and that's the thing is that um, there were some movies in the Oscar race. Let's see if I can think of one this year that that was like this. Uh, I'm not going to say Inside Lewin Davis because it doesn't really fit the mold. Although they did try to put it into the Oscar race. Um, Movies like uh, Munich and Road to Perdition and um, Emperor's Club and Cold Mountain, they start the year with with a really strong publicity team behind them. And the bloggers are championing them and everybody's predicting them to get in. And this is all based on what's on the page, meaning big sweeping epic, who directed it, who stars in it. It looks like it can't lose. It's going to go all the way as a nominee. But like you said, Craig, when people see those movies and they're a downer, like you could say that about Inside Lewin Davis, it was a downer. Road to Perdition was a downer. Cold Mountain was a downer. And as opposed to Mystic River, which is also a downer, but there's justice done in Mystic River. I mean, the, the bad guys do get justice done. Mm-hmm. So, Cold Mountain, too, I mean, think because it was Anthony Mingala and Miramax that everybody, and it, and it had a, it, it was a war slash love story. Everybody thought English patient and probably went into it expecting something along those lines. Yes. And there's really nothing romantic about it because the two so-called lovers spend the entire movie apart. Right. Right. Another thing, too, I wasn't even really, I wasn't in the loop back then, and so I wasn't keeping up with movie news, and, and I wasn't reading the trades and stuff, and, and and there wasn't Twitter and stuff to keep to, but somehow I managed to hear anyway that Cold Mountain, the novel, you know, was enormously popular with critics. It won the National Book Award and almost won the Pulitzer Prize, and um, I believe that as Mingala does, Anthony Mingala also always changes his source. He changes his source material and adapts it for movies and does really interesting things with, with his source material. But I think a lot of people were disappointed that the way he, that he changed the ending of Cold Mountain. Even oh. though I read the book and I saw the movie, I can't tell you the difference right now offhand what the difference was. But I have in my mind sort of that the that the um, that the ending was a little bit jazzed up for the movie, that, mm. that it was a little bit more of a showdown in the movie than it was in the book, and that a lot of people were really disappointed in that. And I heard about that, even though I was, as I say, I wasn't in the loop. And so if that sort of news was seeping around Hollywood, that Mingle had, had tampered with a, with, a, with a masterpiece book and blew and messed it up, then yeah. that would have hurt the, hurt the movie, I think. That's possible. I just, I, I mean, I can't really remember exactly why. I'm pretty sure that most of us were left you know, holding the bag when nominations came out and it wasn't in because the movie that took its place was Master and Commander. 
And that was the mm-hmm. one no one really saw coming. That was a surprise nominee. That was kind of like the Dallas Buyers Club, you know, that, that got got. The, I tell you one thing about the Academy. They love Peter Weir. Mm-hmm. They really do, you know, uh, other than The Way Back, which is a terrible movie and got ignored. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Poor The Way Back. I know. Oh, God. Oh, God. Please never make me have to watch it. That would be my idea of torture is being put. Two, two movies, Jimmy P and The Way Back are like two movies that like if you – if you wanted to torture someone, you tie them to a chair and make them watch them. But um, but yeah, Master Commander was 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 the surprise nominee. And let me look at the directors. Did Peter Weir get in for director too? Uh, uh, he did. Yes. And not only did he get in, but uh, but Master Command Commander got ten or eleven nominations yeah. altogether. Look at the string of nominations. It got, it got cinematography and sound editing. It won both of those, and it was nominated for yeah. best picture, best director, film editing, set decoration, costume design, yeah. best makeup, sound mixing, and visual effects. So it was it, it almost was very... had as many nominations as Return of the King. Yeah, and that was one that, that the bloggers just didn't see coming. You know, I don't mm. think that they... I think they were thinking it was... Because Cold Mountain was the one that entered the race with all of the big... Um, mm-hmm. And Cold Mountain came out at Christmas too, didn't it? I remember that year, and I think that it was a, it was a big Christmas movie. And so that mm. it was it was positioned to be an Oscar movie. The thing about yes. Master and Commander and probably the reason why it surprised people. I mean, if you look at the pedigree of it, it seems like, yeah, an Oscar-type movie because it's got an Oscar-winning actor and Peter Weir, director, and well, reasonably well-regarded source material, except it was a huge box office disappointment. It yes, only made exactly. like $93 million, and it cost 150 Right. which I'm sure it's made its money back in a way worldwide and video and all that stuff, but that's got the stink of a bomb on it when it first comes yeah, out. Yeah, that's so true. That's why it was surprising, I think, that it got into the Oscar race, but they really liked it, you know? They did. Like, people really loved that movie, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't something that we all foresaw that it would be that big, um, that it would be that big with, with the Academy. But, yeah, so it is – so to answer that person's question is, yes, it was surprising to everybody that Cold Mountain didn't get in. On the other hand, knowing what we all know now about the Oscars and how uh, how they, they don't really go for the downers like that. you know, It's telling that uh, Renee Zellweger won for supporting actress. I mean, she was deserving because she was deserving the year before for actress. Um, but she's the lightest part of the film. She Her character's got – all manner of spunk and humor. So she's somebody you can sort of wrap your arms around, whereas the rest of the film is really pretty hardcore. I could wrap my hands around her neck. <laughs> the, way, the way she did the that turkey that she slaughters oh. in the movie. I don't like her in that movie at all. I didn't <laughs> like her in the movie at all. No, uh, uh, my least favorite part of the movie. Another interesting thing about this year well, is that... Oscar the, disagrees with you. <laughs> no, well, that's fine. There was one other movie that... Um, we're not talking about, and let me just double check to see if it got a Best Picture nomination. Um, is uh, Sea Biscuit, and it did. It got a nomination. <laughs> I don't know how it managed to get a nomination, but it did. So Gary Ross was was nominated for director for Sea Biscuit and for DGA, and um, not for the Oscar for director, but DGA. And and you know how DGA is so good with predicting Best Picture. Well, so was Peter Weir nominated. I think that the DGA five matches the Oscar Best Picture five for five, and that's how how reliable the DGA can be. Oscar mm-hmm. directors went for Fernando Marai for City of God um, instead of what's his name, but um, 
I think that that shows something about even though I, I think that that backs up what we say about 2003 not being a very strong year, because even though we have two or three or four really strong movies at the top, Lord of the Rings, Lost in Translation, Mystic River and Master and Commander, after that, there's such a steep drop off that, that you have to go way, way down to find anything worth 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 um, nominating. Well, I think everyone's probably disappointed that American Splendor didn't get nominated because it won that was, several of the critics' awards, right? That was the big, big story, yes. That was the yeah. big story with the critics and the writers about the Oscars is that it was totally shut out and nobody liked it because that, I think that was the one that won all the major critic awards. Really, that Seabiscuit nomination is absolute evidence of a really good Oscar strategist because it really didn't deserve to be nominated for Best Picture. It's not that good. Um, it's okay. It's a feel-good movie. It's got a lot of really great things about it, but it's it's really sort of your old-school Oscar contender. It's not for this year. There were other movies that that could have gotten in for like City of God, mm-hmm. for instance, for Best Picture. But I, would City of God ever have been nominated for Best Picture? I don't know that that city uh, when I can't find I can't think of a precedent when a movie like City of God would have been nominated for Best Picture. It happened in the '70s and stuff, and and later, if a movie maybe they liked it enough to give it a directing nomination, but mm-hmm. but the directors sure, are usually yeah. more. Brave than everybody else so you're right but um in america is one that could have gotten there you go you know we both these movies both uh, both city of god and in america we mentioned both of those movies last week because they were officially produced in 2002 but they weren't released and they weren't eligible in 2000 into until 2003 mm-hmm. and so i wanted yeah i'm glad that you brought that up in america i really i really really wanted in america to to be nominated for best picture and it was nominated for a couple of things, but I think, wasn't it? I think a lot of people did. Screenplay, among other things. Jaman Hansu got nominated. Right. Uh-huh. And, and you know, that was a big, big one that the bloggers, David Poland in specific, was championing that movie really, really hard in America. So that was another one people were surprised by. Believe it or not, it was a, kind of a surprising Best Picture 5 lineup. Like, they knew it would be Lord of the Rings, Lost in Translation. I mean, if we'd been paying attention, we would have known Master and Commander because it was DGA nominee. Mystic River mm-hmm. and Seabiscuit, these are all the five DGA nominees, and you can't go wrong there. But back then, we didn't quite know. Uh, we hadn't analyzed it that closely to, to know that the DGA calls Best Picture. But um, but we were surprised that some of those movies didn't get in. That, that These are examples of movies you can get too attached to when you're championing them, like David Poland with within America. Mm-hmm. You probably still predicted it at the end. If, if I had been around, I would have been, really been gung-ho about Master and Commander because I really so much enjoyed I think it came out around Thanksgiving and I, I, I saw it four or five times between the t- after, after it came out. I liked it so much. You know, it's a little bit of trivia. You know, it was filmed in the same tank where the Titanic was filmed. They mm-hmm. built that 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 uh, that that whole ship, they built it full scale in the same, same tank where Titanic was built. No kidding. Because, it was, yeah, it was a Fox film. And so the Fox still owned that property down there in Baja, California. And so they had that. And they actually adapted that, that tank down there to make it, you know, like those, um, those swimming pools that have the invisible edge. Yeah. What do they call those? Infinity pools? Yeah. Infinity pools. Yeah, but they built it like that so that it would blend into the ocean in the distance. Well, they, they hadn't done that for Titanic. Hmm. Um. You were going to have to talk about Master and Commander because I, though I, Peter Weir is one of my favorite directors and I, it's it's beautiful to look at. It just mm-hmm. wasn't one of my favorites of that year. I thought it was kind of, um, I'm sorry to have to say it, but sort of dull. Oh well, it's okay. No, I I can understand that. You know, there's a certain type of movie that's just not not for everybody, and that's that that those those seafaring novels and the, 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 the I forget the guy who wrote that series of novels about the guy who's the, the 
the main character, Master and Commander. But there's a series of those books. There's like 15 or 20 of them, really. He's written a ton of them. And this was one of the most loved. And this one has a has a nice slant that I thought that you might have liked because it has, they visit the Galapagos, don't they? And there's yeah. a, there's a... Just sort of a sausage fest, you know. Isn't it like a cast of all men? I well, yeah, remember. because there's no there's no women those are no women on a ship like that, right? Because, so yeah, yeah. It doesn't have to always have a woman to make it interesting for me, but when it's all men like that, if it's not a really really exciting film, it'll lose my interest pretty quickly. But mm-hmm. unless it's I, really well done, and, and it is well done, and a lot of people loved it. I know. I'm not I'm not dissing it. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. It just wasn't one that I personally connected with. I think a lot of people, it had been a long time. It's sort of the same thing as like Gladiator. It had been a long time since a movie like that had been made because those movies had fallen out of fashion and they were really expensive to make. And so it's like it went back to an earlier era when they used to make a lot of pirate pirate movies and stuff like that. Yeah, that's right. And that was one of the stories, too, was that the Academy members were kind of old-fashioned and they were really appreciative that there was this kind of old school movie that came along was one yeah, of the reasons I think why they loved it that much. Yeah. It. There's also behind the scenes stuff about it that I don't really remember specifically, but there were stories, there were Oscar stories floating around, good stories, you know, about mm. getting it made and how difficult it was and things like oh, that. Oh, it was really difficult because, you know, even though that it was in a tank, it was on gimbals. I mean, that, that entire ship that would, would tilt at all kinds of wild angles. So when they were filming it on the decks, so they were at a 45-degree angle, and they were having water hoses sprayed at them as, as well as, as uh, jet engines kicking up this wind that was blowing them. It was dangerous. You know, it was really dangerous, even though it was a controlled situation. It was just like being on the high seas. So that's, it was really realistic as far as as um, that was concerned. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I know that it has a lot, you know, a big fan base. Craig, did you like the Master Director and Commander? Did you see it? I did not. I did see it and I did not like it. Oh, you did too. <laughs> Why didn't you like it? What's that? Well, how come you didn't like it? I don't remember. It's been, what, 11 years since it came out. I've not seen it since. I mean, I thought it was fine. It was, I, liked the, uh, I liked the boats shooting at each other. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty much all I remember. Yeah. Yeah, same here. I mean, I, I remember it being beautiful. Russell Crowe's in it, right? Yeah. yeah. Paul Bettany. Right, right. And they were re- reunited again for... Did we miss? And Paul, Paul Bettany is a naturalist. They take him along, and he's he's doing. He he goes to find all these uh, rare uh, species on the Galapagos. Right. That's why I kind of thought you might like it because it has the Darwin angle. Yeah. Right. Right. I, it, yeah, I did. It just it didn't really. I mean, it wasn't really deep enough that's in okay. that. Yeah, that's fine. But I, you know, I should see it again. I bet I would like it a lot more now, especially considering the crap Hollywood has taken lately with movies. If I'd had time, I would have rewatched it because I love rewatching movies that I had a negative opinion of originally, just to see if my growing brain has changed its its attitude about certain things. And a lot of times it has. There's been a lot of movies that I've watched that for this podcast that I didn't used to like that I'd turned around on. Yeah, and I just want to say that Seabiscuit, I'm not saying that it didn't, that it wasn't a good movie. It was actually a movie that I really loved and watched over and over again because I just fell madly in love with that character, Seabiscuit. You know, such a great mm-hmm. character, you know, a little broken down old horse who, you know, is, is nervous and, and needs a little goat in his in his pen with him to calm him down. And, um, and when he finally starts winning, it's so glorious, you know, it's like Secretariat. It's, it's you know, it's just the thing about a racehorse but um they tried to 
I guess Secretariat was an attempt to to recapture the magic that Seabiscuit had, but it didn't didn't make it. And we thought that it might because, it, for one thing, it was a Disney movie, and I remember that it premiered in all over Kentucky because you know was, they thought that that would be a nice place to to get a good initial reaction for it. Yeah. But it just it, that shows how hard it is to make a movie like that really? to have it to be uh, gripping and emotionally um, involving. I like Seabiscuit a lot too. I liked Cold Mountain a lot, even in spite of the fact that it was different from the novel. Yeah, it had um, it um, it. So when Seabiscuit got nominated, it did it got a lot of flack. You know, it, it had a lot of um, people complaining that it was that it was nominated, that it took the place of other movies. But like you mm-hmm. say, this this isn't this isn't exactly the most competitive year. You know, it's not like yeah, that's what I was that's what I've said. Yeah, I think yeah. That, probably what people don't like about Seabiscuit is the same thing they don't like about a lot of movies that are they call them sappy because they're they're sentimental. They're naturally sentimental. They have to be. That's what makes them work. That's what grabs you by the heart. But a lot of people don't like to feel like they, they're being manipulated. They feel like they're being manipulated by movies like that. But I didn't feel manipulated by it. I just felt really into it. I think another thing about the direction um, in Seabiscuit is I don't think that anyone had ever really had, got a camera out on the racetrack in underneath the horses hooves like yeah. like Gary Ross was able to do at that time. That was astonishing to see that. Right, right. And since then, I've come to really loathe horse racing and wish that they would stop mm. doing that to animals. But back then, it was really... I wasn't thinking that way, but... Um, yeah, I can't watch any of the horse races anymore. I can watch the replays if I know that no horse got hurt, but I can yeah. never watch it live because you never know what's going to happen. It's yeah. too, too and horrifying. You, and you know what they've been through, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so we and we so we like all of the movies pretty well from from two thousand three, but we agreed that it wasn't a really strong year overall, and it was it was one of the weaker years compared to some of the other years we've talked about recently. But we should talk about um, we should talk about Lost in Translation a little bit since we haven't really gone in depth. I know Craig, you rewatched it, and Craig and I got into a little discussion about it on Facebook, which was that I said that it's every man's fantasy. This movie and and. It came out kind of snotty, and I didn't. I didn't exactly mean it that way. Although, I suppose there is there is an undercurrent of that, and that um, you know, men men tend to. It's the same kind of way that they reacted to her with Scarlett Johansson. I think that there's a protective instinct that comes into it, and and I think it's a fantasy for both sides, though, for men and women. I think women like to would like to be in that position of having a guy come along and be so protective. Of, of them and, and guiding them as a mentor, an older man. And then men sort of see it as, you know, that they would also like to be in that guiding, protective role, I suppose. It's a weird way to look at that movie. It, it's I liked the, I, the, the, the paternal aspect of it really did appeal to me. I don't know if that's every man's fantasy or not, but it would just, especially because it was Scarlett Johansson and because she is so smoking hot that you would just assume that the first card a man would play with her, whatever his age is, would be the sexual card. And Bill Murray just never really does that. Mm. You have a sense that maybe if she threw herself at him, he might be open to it, but he never... He never he never plays that card, and there's just that one sweet moment where they're sleeping in bed together, and he just kind of reaches over and puts his hand on her foot, and that's it. That's as close as they ever come to having sex. They're still completely clothed. She's all in grubby sweats and a sweatshirt, and it's like a non-sexual thing. It's just it's just two human beings at totally different ends of their lives who are both lost, reaching out to each other for comfort and having, I don't know, at the time that I saw it, I think I kind of felt lost in my own life and just kind of 
not the 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 metaphor of being in a foreign country just felt really apt. I, I almost felt in Los Angeles like I was in a foreign country a lot of times. Does it get easier? No. Yes. It gets easier. No, oh, yeah. Look at you. Thanks. <laughs> and the more you know who you are and what you want, the less you let things upset you. Yeah. I just don't know what I'm supposed to be. You know? I tried being a writer, but I hate what I write. And I tried taking pictures, but they're so mediocre, you know? And every girl goes through a photography phase. You know, like horses, you know, take uh, dumb pictures of your feet. You'll figure that out. And I'm not worried about you. Keep riding. But I'm so mean. Mean's okay. Yeah. What about marriage? Does that get easier? That's hard. We used to have a lot of fun. Lydia would come with me when I made the movies and we would laugh about it all. Now she doesn't want to leave the kids, and she doesn't need me to be there. The kids miss me, but they're fine. It gets a whole lot more complicated when you have kids. Yeah, it's scary. It's the most terrifying day of your life, the day the first one is born. Nobody ever tells you that. Your life, as you know it, is gone. Never to return. But they learn how to walk and they learn how to talk and... And you want to be with them. And they turn out to be the most delightful people you will ever meet in your life. The whole thing just really clicked for me. For me, too. I know people are tired of t hearing me talk about how I was in Thailand for seven years, but I had just come back. And so I knew what that felt like to be in another culture and to be in sort of, to be kind of having people sort of um, cater to you because I was in a position uh, where I was, uh, I had a job and everything where, where people, I had people doing things for me all the time and a little bit like the position that Bill Murray was in. And you have, you depend on those people because you can't get along without them. You have the little entourage who are there to like help smooth the way for you all the time. Mm -hmm. And you're the, you're the, you're the, you're the foreigner who's come in with your, with your, you know, blue eyes or whatever. And, and, and that's, that's your talent. You know, that your talent is that you're the foreigner. And um, so I felt like I really understood what that felt like. 
It was also it's funny what you said about every man's fantasy, even though it was nothing more than just being in bed with Scarlett Johansson and touching her foot. That probably is every man, every 50 year old's fantasy yeah, to just being uh, to just just that. The thing would about be for Scarlett of- Johansson is how we started this thing is that, you know, she's so beautiful and a lot of times men don't want a raunch, especially the kind of men who write about film, they don't really want a raunchy, sexy girl to seduce them. What they want is a quirky, smart girl who's just on her way to discovering herself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she is she is bright and exceptional, and he recognizes that when he sees her. One of the things I love about Bill Murray's performance in that is, is his longing for her when he looks at her. And it's not even mm-hmm. so much a sexual longing. It's more like, I, I wish I was 30 years younger and this girl could be my girlfriend. It's not even like I just want to fuck her brains out. It's like she's so interesting to talk to and she's so cool. And, you know, in a way, in our girl world, because girls are mean and women are mean, um, we just look at that and go, yeah, right. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> women, you know, the real life version of that is Sofia Coppola, who is who is interesting looking and, and you know, not drop dead gorgeous like, like Scarlett Johansson. But there's no doubt about it that Scarlett Johansson is the real deal. I mean, she is that person. She's that smart and she's that cool. And, you know, she hits every note perfectly in that performance every note with him she's like kind of young and tr- and kind of navigating her her way through a marriage and the adult world she doesn't really know what she wants to do with her life she'd maybe take a photographer and her husband's distracted and he's all off with you know other people and and we can talk about this in relation to her also because her is like the companion film the response to lost in translation which was about her marriage as it was falling apart um, and actually, Sofia Coppola did meet. The rumor goes that she spent time with Harrison Ford in in um, in Japan or wherever it was while her husband was was filming a movie. And then she based the story on that experience mm. with Harrison Ford. Um, so, and Scar- Scarlett Johansson really, genuinely was young. She was like eighteen or nineteen years old when she filmed this, right? Yeah, she's very, very young. She was a, still a teenager. I know. Stunningly beautiful. One of the best scenes in the movie is when she's she's gone out wandering in Tokyo, just trying to find some connection to something. You know, she's her her husband is being distant, and she's feeling lost and alone. And she watches these. Um, I think they're Buddhist monks doing their thing, and you know she realizes she should be fascinated by it, but she's just not getting any any feeling from it. And she goes home and she calls. I don't know if it's her friend or if it's her sister or who it is, but she's she's like putting on this face of trying to make it sound like yeah. what a great time she's having, but she just can't hold it in and she just starts bawling because she she feels so powerfully alone and and sort of missing in action. Mm. Really great scene. It is a great scene, and it takes somebody of of his intelligence, I think, to recognize how and, and to bring out in her how cool she is. Like one of the things I love about the movie is that she's always saying how her husband thinks she's a sourpuss and that she's too snooty and snobby and not fun and not sexy and all the things her husband is critical of in her. Bill Murray sees in her. And so she has this kind of funny, relaxed way around him that she doesn't have around her husband, which is all weird and awkward. But um, but that's one of the things I absolutely love is that she meets him at a moment in his life, in her life, when she really needs someone to do that for her. Okay, step out of a movie reality for a minute and say that there's just – it's really hard to believe somebody that beautiful 
and that smart would ever have a moment like that. And I think that a lot of people project onto her, this is the perfect girl. But we should step back and say that in real life, women struggle with, you know, feeling attractive. I mean, in this, it's, it's, it's even that she can look like Scarlett Johansson and still not be attractive to her husband, you know. But there's also this idea that if she wasn't as attractive as Scarlett Johansson and somebody like Bill Murray came along and made her feel attractive, that's really what this movie is sort of getting at. You know, like you don't really watch it going, oh, my God, Scarlett Johansson's so beautiful. You watch it going, this is a girl who doesn't quite know what she is or who she is yet. You know, she doesn't get it. Right. It makes you realize that no matter how beautiful you are, that you're a reflection of the person who you love. And if you're not getting the proper reflection back from the person you love, then your your self, your image of yourself and your self-esteem is not going to reflect your actual your actual physical traits. That's exactly you know? right. That's what I was trying to say, and I was stumbling. So that's... I, I knew that's what you're trying to say, and I, I felt like I was like, there was going to be sound stupid trying to rephrase you, but I, no. I, 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 I felt the same thing, but in, in the same, in sort of in different words. Yeah, no, it's it's that, it's that, and and Bill Murray sees in her like they just have this funny rapport, you know, and it is the kind of thing where in another time and place they would be able to be hook up and be a couple, but he's way too old. And he would married. never and married, and he would never do that to her. That's the great thing about his character is he probably could have exploited that situation if he wanted to. He probably could have gotten her drunk and made a pass at her. Maybe she would have taken him up on it. Maybe she would have rejected him. But he definitely could have. But he definitely- right. And it's not as if he's he's a, he's averse to to having a little sexual escapade because doesn't he have a some kind of strange incident with a prostitute that comes to his room? Yeah. Yeah, but it freaks him out because she, yeah, right. uh-huh. she wants yeah, to do all kinds that- of weird stuff, and he's like, I don't know what. He's just trying to be polite. Exactly. Can't wait right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. But it's the, it's the kind of thing that the, the guy a guy will do when he's in a foreign country. It's like I'll try something new, and no one will ever know because what happens in Tokyo stays in Tokyo. Right. right? <laughs> but again, that 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 shows how much respect he had for Scarlett Johansson's character that he never attempted anything like that with her. You know, I don't know if that movie came out today. If 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 uh, Sofia Coppola would get a lot of flack for her, if Stephen Colbert can get shit for his joke he made, I wonder right. if the whole lip my stocking scene would. Even um, even back then, I, she was criticized because the the. Most of the Japanese characters are treated in sort of a stereotypical fashion, right. but that's not fair because these characters are being presented to you through the perspective of of Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson, and to them, they are a little bit odd. They have to be a little bit odd because that's the disorienting experience that they're having. You know, the movie is not the movie is not about Japanese culture. Japanese culture is just a metaphor for them being lost, and mm. to criticize it on that grounds, which it definitely would be today, is just ridiculous. But you know, it was even though it was a stereotypical, it wasn't insultingly so. I don't think, and I can verify that it, it's a stereotype to stereotypes because that refle- it's it reflects happen. reality. It's the real thing. I mean, I've seen that. You know, if you you've been in Asia, you've seen people like that. And so right. it's not as if it was made up and it was made up to be uh, made ridiculous because it's, it, it, that's reality. Yeah. I mean, it's and it's the point of view of the characters, too. Like Craig was saying, mm-hmm. it's definitely yeah, that. Exactly. So but I just wonder in this day and age, I think she would get she would get strong. She would get criticized for that. Scene. Even more than she was originally, for sure. More, what, yeah. What's interesting to me about it and her um, when Virgin Suicides came out a few years before this, um, 
I kind of dismissed her. I didn't take that movie very seriously, and I kind of thought, oh, it's, you know, Francis Ford's daughter. Of course she's made this film, you know, and, you know, having a famous cinematographer working on it. I, I, I didn't really give her that much credit, and it wasn't her original material. It was based on a novel. So I had no expectations that Lost in Translation was going to be this huge leap forward that it was. Looking back, Virgin Suicide is actually really good, but Lost in Translation is, is an even bigger jump beyond that it's 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 you know sex lies and videotape level um sort of i don't know i don't yes. want to say groundbreaking but just an amazing artistic achievement absolutely it is a it's a very per- complete perfect film and i think a lot of her subsequent films have suffered in people's perceptions because it's not lost in translation even though I think her subsequent films are really great too, but none of them are quite as good or pure. Because every movie like that needs that one moment. And the one moment in Lost in Translation is when he whispers in her ear at the end and you have no idea what he says to her. It's so moving. I get chills just thinking about it. And that scene works every time I watch it. And then it starts with that Just Like Honey music. Um, I just got a chill. You're right. And and she's like, the look on her face... Um, and the look on his face when he's telling whatever he's telling her, you assume it's something like you're an amazing person. You're going to go on to do great things in your life or something along those lines, or maybe it wasn't, but whatever it was, it changed her life. And that is crystal clear in that one moment in that movie. And that makes it to me, elevates it from a very good movie to an absolutely great movie. Is that another thing I remember hearing at the time is that, um, she talked about how her, her screenplay was like only like 70 pages long. Or something like that, and that and so people said, well, there, that that means there's a lot of imp- improvisation right. that Bill Murray and and Scarlett Johansson made up a lot of their lines on on set, and so you, why are you winning an Oscar for for a movie that was improvised? And I do remember hearing a lot about that, but that that just that just shows the the elegant simplicity of the script, you know, and the fact that that you don't that she was able to express things that 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 don't have to be written on the page. Mm. Yeah, and and the thing about Lost in Translation and her are the to me I the, to me the, the singularly best Scarlett Johansson um, performances because she is allowed to just be a regular person and not she's not eroticized she's not the seductress she's not neurotic she's not you know she's just natural and herself or you know probably close to what herself is and. In both of them, and and it was an accident that she was in her because in in um, he was originally going to be Samantha Morton. He wrote the part for her, and, and, and Samantha Morton did the whole movie, but mm-hmm. against uh, Joaquin Phoenix. But they watched it, and it didn't work. Like either she they had no chemistry, or she wasn't sexy enough, or whatever it was. They had to put Scarlett Johansson in there, and and she brings to it the same kind of naturalism that she brings to Lost in Translation. And the thing about her is. You know, when she steps outside that, that she doesn't. She's not the world's best actress. You know, she doesn't really. Although I think what she's doing this year is going to take her to a different level. I think she's finally come into the the kind of part that she was meant to play. But what what people have been doing with her up to then, I think, um, didn't work. But in these two performances, you really see. I think what the power of what she can do on screen, and. Um, and, and it is that natural way that she speaks in both of these that, that are so alluring. It's not just alluring as in, oh, my God, I'm so in love. It's, it's, it's a, she brings you into her character. She brings you into the story with that naturalism. And in, in Lost in Translation, it's disarming, actually. 
that. And and a lot of directors haven't been able to bring that out in her. And these, these are really it was crazy. sad to see how badly she'd been wasted up until recently, after Lost in Translation. Because even even before Lost in Translation, that was her first big adult role. But she was also great in Ghost World. Yeah. And she was great in The Man Who Wasn't There. But she played much younger And in Horse Whisperer. She was good in that, too. And, and then what? Woody Allen was Horse going Whisperer. to cast Kate Blanchett, Blanchett in... in uh, Match point, but for one reason or another, Kate, Kate decided not. She did what didn't want to do that movie, and so he replaced her with Scarlett Johansson, and then she became Woody Allen's muse for a couple of movies, yeah. two or three movies in a row. Right. The thing she about her them. is that she, when she started out, as you say, she did these The Horse Whisperer. She did these movies where she was just this goofy kid, and she really was a goofy kid. She had these weird giant features. She looked kind of awkward. She was just kind of a tomboy, and. And she she turned into this like insanely beautiful swan, and I don't think she was ever really prepared for that for for what her like physical body turned into. And she she did sort of own it. I mean, she's owned it now, her po- you know posing and stuff. But there's still that side of her that is just still this normal person. And I think that that she as an actress, she's at her most powerful or, or had been before 2014, because I think she's really gonna. She's going to do something totally different with with Lucy and with Under the Skin, but but back then she was um, like Craig is saying. She just they they kind of wasted her after that because she became so sexy and so beautiful. Nobody knew what to do with her. You know, mm-hmm. it's like let's cast her as something sexy, like that horrible Michael Bay movie where she's running around. Oh God, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but. <laughs> I, was like, I don't well, even know. What that that makes the assumption that there's a good Michael Bay movie. I would yeah, no, that. this one's just, oh, my God. <laughs> but I know like, you're talking about The Island with Ian McGregor. Unwatchable. And she's terrible in it. And it's not her fault. She's just playing the dumbest it's, character. It's the screenplay. Yeah. See, I, I think she, in a way, she's sort of betrayed by her own outward eroticism, which is why I think she's so great in both her, where she doesn't, her physical body isn't being seen, and in Lost in Translation, where she's sort of buttoned up. And plays this kind of pressure. although there's that opening shot of her ass that everybody remembers and talks about but that's the only time she's ever really sexualized and it's and it's there's an innocence about it it's not it there it's not really carnal but you obviously notice it and go wow that that's a sexy ass yeah at least i i do <laughs> i know no who couldn't that's the whole right. point of that scene is that here she is this luscious peach and her husband's like oh man i gotta, I gotta right. make these phone calls and, and he's gotta not, go bang anna ferris yeah he's not looking and seeing oh my god look at what is in my bed you know Interestingly, she was in The Girl with the Pearl Earring in the same year, which seemed like sort of an, a, an Oscar-flavored movie. It was, uh, I think, the story of, of, of a Vermeer painting, I think. Mm-hmm. But it was like, like a period piece and you know, costumes and rich cinematography, but it, it, it didn't get much interest. Does anybody yeah. remember it? Am I yeah, the only one that remembers okay. that? No, I, I liked that movie. I liked yeah. it. Uh, I thought she was fine in it. I she thought was she was. Fine I thought she it, carried. Yeah. I thought she brought the right attitude to that movie. Yeah, and she was. She was also good in a movie that nobody else liked except me, which was the uh, Anne Boleyn movie with with Natalie Portman. It was Natalie Portman and, and Scarlett mm. Johansson. And, I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's just if you're a Henry VIII, you know, fanatic, or if you have any interest in him and his weird eight wives that he killed, or whatever, how many wives there were. You'll like it because she, and and Natalie Portman is specific, is really really good as Anne Boleyn. She's fantastic in that part. It was a total precursor to Black Swan. Didn't didn't get any attention. I think it got panned, but um, but but she's great in it. Natalie Portman, really fantastic. She, unlike Scarlett Johansson, I think Natalie Portman is sort of used to being um, pretty. 
you know like i think scarlett johansson was like not pretty until one day she was suddenly oh my god she's beautiful you know yes natalie was cute even as a little kid yeah and she knew it i mean she was already really pretty when she did that movie the luke besson movie but um natalie portman really great in cold mountain by the way yeah she was the standout and she doesn't get nominated right no she was the only good thing about it (laughs) (laughs) poor cold mountain (laughs) i I liked cold mountain it it was such a downer but i liked it it was was hard to watch but it was very good i just i thought nicole kidman at this point was overexposed and just was Mm. not it was not jude poor jude law also was overexposed he was about to go through a really major career shift and he was going through a lot of personal things at that point. His 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 being such a cad was starting to come out right then, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. At any rate, he I know he, he things got so bad for him that Sean Penn had to, to defend him at the Oscars. I don't know if it was that year or not. Remember when he came out and he said Jude Law is one of our best actors? He actually had to defend uh, the jokes because there were some just Jude Law jokes. Right, were right, the right. You wouldn't know it now because nowadays he's just kind of gone sunk back into being a character actor like he was in the beginning of his career. But there was a time when he was a really big star. Right. He was he was being groomed as like the next big thing out of England. It seems like yeah. every couple of years there's a new hottie guy out of England and he's going to be the guy. And for a while it was him, yes. Ewan McGregor before him. And they neither one of them has really lived up to that. I have to say <laughs> I love Jude Law, though. I really think he's a funny – I love him in um, – in, um, Contagion, uh-huh. and I'm so mm-hmm. dying to see this new movie. <laughs> oh, they showed the previews for that today before the Grand Budapest Hotel, and it looks fantastic because he's such a he's such a cad. I you know, know, he's such a, 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 a low class character. Plus, in he's Don great in, um, he's great in AI, and he's fantastic and talented, Mr. Ripley. I mean, mm-hmm. he's just a wonderful actor. But yes, his his matinee idol status overshadowed his his acting. But Sean Penn stuck up for him that one time. I wish I could remember what year it was. But, um, but yeah, he had to come out and say Jude Law is one of our finest actors. When I think one of the whoever the host was was making some Jude Law joke, which is so funny to think of it now because who would make a Jude Law joke right now? Like it just nobody would even know what that meant. You know? Yeah, exactly. He's That's great it. in Grand Budapest Hotel, even though he plays a little bit of a, I guess, sort of like a Nick Carraway character where he's sort of the observer. He's having a story told to him. And so he's, he's really just there to react to the story. But his reactions are, are spot on. I mean, his timing is great. Hmm. It's just really enta- entertaining to watch. Yeah. Okay, here's my top five movies from the Oscar year that we're, we're doing. And only one of them... Actually, no, I take that back because City of God did get plenty of... A lot more traction than I would have thought. But um, Lost in Translation, American Splendor, The Station Agent with um, uh, Patricia Clarkson, Bobby Cannavale, and um, Peter Dinklage. First time I'd mm-hmm. ever seen Peter Dinklage in anything. Um, City of God. And... Uh, a movie that I've always loved that gets made fun of and a lot of people can't stand it is Bernardo Bertolucci's The Dreamers. Oh, you know, I'm not going to make fun of any Bertolucci movie. I know you like Bertolucci, yeah. but he, yeah. people, they got terrible reviews when it came out. And it's, there's, there's an artificiality to it, I think, that puts people off. But it it, it, was, it was a perfect title because it was a dreamy, almost hallucinatory kind of reminiscence about the late 60s. It was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. I like that movie a lot, a lot, a lot. Another movie 
There wasn't that other movie that was like a it was really long Italian film. The best like, of youth. The best of youth is like five hours long. Talking yeah. about a movie that makes that because we like we all like television. What television does with long form. I really like long form movies too. I like I like movie trilogies and I like movies that they just go extravagantly over length and four or five hours long. And the best of youth is one of them. And it's a movie that people don't even talk about anymore. I don't the, was it nominated? The critics really had a boner for it because it was one of those kind of movies that they. They knew nobody'd seen and they could trumpet it and make themselves look smart i'm not saying that they were wrong but that those kind of movies happen a lot but that yeah it, it was it was beloved and on top 10 list and stuff but but not many people really saw it i'm glad you remember the title because it slipped my mind there for a minute but i can't think of what else the director has done uh, let me see i don't i'm not familiar with any of his other movies but I really did like that movie a lot. It was not and, a, not the world's best year for movies overall. Like I'm looking down the list at movies that came out that year, and um, and and we're not we're not looking like we saw last year with a lot of really really great School of Rock. Um, that's worth mentioning. That was a really I thought a very funny good movie. Intolerable in, that, that, that intolerable cruelty. Maybe not considered the best Coens, but it's always worth bringing up um, a Coen Brothers film that came out. Totally ignored, of course, by the Oscars. Uh, Something's Gotta Give was this year. Am I looking at the right year? Yeah. Uh, what's Her Name was nominated. Oh, she was. Best okay. Actress, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That's because a, she has that crying scene, right? She has a awful, crying scene where she like cries for five minutes. Terrible, terrible movie. I'm sorry, but it's just terrible. <laughs> Is it safe to admit that I've never sat down and watched a Nancy Myers movie? Does that make me a horrible person? You're not missing anything. The only good one that I like is, um, and this is a total guilty pleasure of mine. I'm just going to come out and say it, but I'll just start by saying I cannot stand. It's complicated, terrible movie, and something's got to give absolutely horrible. I love Baby Boom, which she made with her husband, and I understand she's 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 upset. You know, her, her husband, her hideous husband, left her probably for a younger woman, and you can see her working that out in these movies. But she always takes the older woman and she puts her in this unrealistic situation where she's, you know, like in Meryl Streep's case, everybody wants to sleep with her. You know, and in, in uh, Diane Keaton's case, everybody wants to sleep with her. Jack Nicholson and Keanu Reeves, you know. And it's great. I think it's great that she's trying to make older women, you know, movies where older women are attractive. And in a way, she's kind of doing what Lena Dunham's doing is just sort of putting them in there and saying, you you, you just deal with this because this is what I'm saying. But at the same time, she, they're, they're, you know, totally rich. They live in these giant houses. They have perfect clothes, perfect dishes, perfect food. It's just like, ugh. You know, yeah, it's, just, it's the Brentwood factor that turns me off because they don't—they don't seem like real people to me. No, I mean, does she have to do that? Can't they be like normal, you know, semi-poor people? But, right. um, but one movie that I really do like that she made is—I <laughs> um, don't even know what it's called—but <laughs> it stars. Um, Kate Winslet and Cameron. The D. Holiday. That's I was going to say. That's actually the oh, yeah. only one that I've ever mm-hmm. actually seen. I really like that movie. I like both of those actresses. You see the Nancy Myers ishness with Cameron Diaz's character, like that house that she lives in and who she is and what she is and the perfect clothes. And but I just love those two actresses so much. And Jude Law, speaking of, is mm-hmm. is um, Cameron Diaz's. And I just it's so funnily written. These characters are so great. Like I could just really relate to both of them. I love Kate Winslet story with um eli wallach playing the screenwriter next door that she kind of spends all of her time with and she has sort of a romance with um jack black and you know they switch houses and they they each of them are getting over like heartbreak and they meet new men and i just 
I, I could watch that movie over and over and over again. <laughs> I love it so much. I'm mean, there. You go. My guilty admission. See that that this is when I I find myself on planet female, but usually I don't. I don't really. No, I like that movie too. It's well written and it's really funny and it's really well acted. It really has a great balance. Everything comes together really well in that movie. It just it's just some kind of. Uh, alchemy, some kind of chemistry and magic happened with that movie. Yeah, I think so too. It didn't really get good reviews and no one paid any attention to it, but to me it's like those old Carol Lombard movies or you mm-hmm. know the, the movies from the 40s with women. You just kind of sink into these really great stories. I'm sorry that there aren't more movies about women in Hollywood. There just aren't, but um, not like there were in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. So that's just the era we're living in. But um, Speaking of any... movies about women, though, I don't think we should let the podcast go without talking about um, Charlize Theron and Monster and mm-hmm. Keisha Castle-Hughes and Whale Rider. Yeah, yeah. Both. I don't know what to say about them, but we should we should not. <laughs> well, interestingly, I have to say it's funny that Charlize and Sean Penn, who are dating now, both won that year, which is I think is so funny because they're they're now like a couple. I don't know if they've broken up, but they've been a couple for a while, which is so cute. And they both won the Oscars um, this year. But uh, yeah, Charlize Theron, she really put it on the line. And when you do that, you win Oscars. You know, you she was so she was such the slam dunk. It was like Matthew McConaughey and Dallas Buyers Club and right. How do you feel about that award now? Or how did you feel about it then and how do you feel about it now? I thought she was great. Unassailable. Like, I think she is, you know, she really did what she needed to do. She gained weight. She transformed herself. The thing about her, and especially back then, now that she has a little bit of age to her, um, it's just not the case anymore. But she was, she was like Scarlet. She was like Mm -hmm. intimidatingly pretty. And Mm -hmm. I think... Bill Clinton said that she was the only celebrity he wanted to sleep with or something. Like, she was really hot stuff. She was the it girl. Yeah. And now she's not anymore, so it's kind of hard to relate to that. But but then you, you look at her now and you go, sure, she could play that part. But back then, it was such a huge, drastic turnaround from the kind of parts that she'd been playing. It was like Hillary Swank. I mean, she really physically transformed into this character and a lot of actresses just won't do that they won't go through all that gain all that weight especially ones who are as beautiful as she is she's never been as as beautiful as she is and was and for as much attention as she got for her beauty she never she never seemed comfortable playing that part you know being being the pretty girl she always wanted to do more than that yeah, and she's interesting as, as an actress, Charlize. Another preview that I saw this afternoon is a movie called A Million Ways to Die in the West. She's, um, right. she's, and she, it's a, it's a, it looks like an incredibly funny comedy. You know how hard it is for me to laugh. If, if, you, t- if you put me in front of a comedy, I'm just more likely to get angry instead of you know, have a good time. But I laugh so much at this preview. It's uh, Seth MacFarlane, I think, wrote it yeah. and also stars in it. Right. And Neil Patrick Harris. And it looks like it's going to be really, really funny. I'm looking forward to it. And she, is, she has fantastic comic timing. Charlie I just Theron. hope it's funny in a, in a good way and not in a woman-hating way. I really do. No, it's not at all. Not that I've seen. No, she's, she's, she's right up... She's 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 his equal. Oh, good. Yeah, it's not doesn't make fun of women at all. You know, she's she's right there alongside him. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Whale Rider was, um, I, I think, directed by a woman, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Nikki yep. Caro. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yes. That's yeah. Right. Keisha Castle Hughes. Didn't we say that that was released the year before or something like? It came that? out. I mean, we talked about it last year. It didn't yeah. come out in the U.S. until this year. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But uh, you know, I don't. I'm, I'm I'm grumpy and don't think a little kid should be nominated for Oscars. But I'm glad that she was because the actually the only moment I remember of the ceremony was just as the show was starting. Annoying Billy Bush, one of those Access Hollywood douchebags, was roaming around being all cutesy with the audience. And he, he tracks down Keisha Castle Hughes, who was this enormous, you know, 13-year-old fan of Johnny Depp, who happened to be there for Pirates of the Caribbean. So he introduced the two of them, and she just, she imploded. It was like the cutest thing I've ever seen <laughs> on the Oscars. Oh. I, I love that moment. Hold and on. he was, Johnny Depp could have been, you know, weird Johnny Depp, but he was actually really sweet to her. It was nice. I have to Am I the it. only one who remembers that? You I don't remember that. And I'm still oh. stuck on the fact that you don't think that kids could should be nominated for Oscars. I, just yeah. don't, I don't understand that. You guys, I have I to know. run to Nobody the bathroom. Does. I'll be right back, okay? Okay. Right. Um, you know, because, I mean, a lot of adult actresses do, depend on their director uh, uh, wearing them out or, or getting certain emotional reactions out of them that don't necessarily come from... Any sort of acting method, so I don't think that kids are that much different from a lot of adult actresses. For instance, a lot of people were saying that about uh, um, Blue is the Warmest Color that 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 actress probably only had only was only was only was so emotionally involving because of what the director put her through, right? I don't yeah. agree with that, but I mean, I, I do. I don't think that you should you should look down. I mean, I don't think that I don't think that. I think the kids deserve credit for what they do in, in movies. Kids, because especially when you look at the way that kids used to do, be in movies, kids in movies in the 1940s and 50s, you just want to kick them all in the face, you know, just want to slap them, don't you? Mm-hmm. They're yeah. just so precocious. That's, that's you know? the way they were directed, though. Yeah, but, it's not them. I mean, by that standard, then you agree with me because it's no, not I the just, kids. I don't, I'm not, it's not so the kids sure. being who they were. It was the way that they were directed. I'm as not it so is sure. I, I really do think the kids back then, the, the actors, the kids actors who were in, in Hollywood, I think that they were precocious little snots. And I don't that's, think that's kids what were, that's what they wanted. We should also talk about Elephant. I know that. Uh, Good. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, it was kind of disregarded that year a little bit by people, but totally. over the years, it's it's kind of gained in esteem. And I know that if you watch that history of film or story of film um, thing on Netflix, that's interesting. They they do, he talks a lot about Gus Van Zandt. He, he pays a lot of attention to this particular film and what Gus Van Zandt was doing with Elephant. And Elephant was about the uh, it, it won the Palme d'Or, and it couldn't have been further away from Oscar. If you try, you know. I think uh, Gus Van Sant, because of Drugstore Cowboy and because of, uh, crap, what was the Nicole Kidman one we were talking about many podcasts ago? To uh, Die For? Yeah, To Die For. Because of those two films, I think he, um, and he'd done some other big, bigger scale movie. I think he, I think people were surprised that he came back and made this movie that cost like $5 and didn't, and didn't star actors. It starred just like regular people. And, you know, it was a total micro art house film. I think it was too easily dismissed by people hmm. Interesting. because of that. Am uh, I wrong? Do I, am I remembering wrong? I, no, I think that they think that was it. All the other thing about it was that it was about Columbine and right. People were, I think, a little bit thrown by that because they were they didn't know what to expect. Was it going to be a movie about Columbine or? Yeah, but but it wasn't. I mean, it was it was a similar situation by. to call. It was inspired by Columbine, but it wasn't Columbine. Hmm. I seem to recall people complaining that they thought it was exploiting Columbine, though, which is terribly hmm. stupid thing right. to say. Yeah. yeah, and and I remember also people being 
talking a lot about Gus Van Zandt's personal obsession with that pretty blonde boy <laughs> for some reason. I just remember that being part of the press. I don't know why right. it was, but it was. And people are strange, you know, and you don't really know what's right in front of you. Uh, but so the other the films to note, I mean, I think Elephant is interesting. It's it's a I've I've only watched it once and it's mesmerizing that it's movie. Mesmerizing, it's just hypnotic. Yeah. What happened was is he kind of reached his popular peak with Goodwill Hunting, which everybody adored and made a ton of money. And then he made the mistake of doing a shot-for-shot remake of Psycho that everybody hated. And then he made Jerry, which was I think probably cost even less than Elephant. Right. And then Elephant came after that, and it took him a while to sort of. I think people thought he was on sort of a downward slide because he was just making these strange movies that nobody seemed to want to see. I agree. I agree. And it takes like a, a European point of view, right. just like it did with the French who resur- who resurrected and, and made Alfred Hitchcock into to the auteur that we now see him as. It really is going to take other people looking at Gus Van Sant's career, I think, because in, in context of our time, like you say, he was kind of dismissed or written off. Um, but Elephant is probably going to stand out in the next few decades as we look back on on film so it's i would be curious to watch that one again especially since you know the whole school shooting thing is something that hasn't gone away and if anything it's Mm. gotten worse exactly and that's going to highlight it too to see what he does with it um he's an interesting artist that gus van zandt definitely definitely taken for granted in our country so some some movies that are worth talking about, even though they weren't even great particularly, but the com- company with um, directed by Robert Altman. So oh yeah, about the ballet. Yeah, with Nev Campbell, who actually was a dancer, a real mm-hmm. you know ballet dancer. The Cooler with William H Macy and Maria Bello. Um, it, the Cooler, Alec Baldwin, I think, got a supporting nomination for that, but it was a it was an interesting movie that you know people were sort of talking about. It made a lot of waves in the on the art house circuit. Right, right. Um, uh, it was the year when um, uh, Jim Carrey was still really popular at the box office. He hadn't kind of gone away and become depressed, and and that he had Bruce Almighty, which was one of the strongest um, box office hits. Dogville, Lars von Trier made Dogville with Nicole Kidman, which. Um, I don't know. Did it? It says international on here. Does that mean it came out the following year in America, or I don't know? Let me look and see I, if I, I can find out. Can't recall. But Dogville was an interesting experiment that was sort of uh, you know yet another one that might be rediscovered later. But that's Nicole Kidman doing Dogville and um, Cold Mountain in the same year. Another thing we should mention, you know, the Korean film uh, industry had had. Uh, had a golden era in like the 60s and 70s. And then they had a, a couple of decades of really oppressive governments when the governments exercised a lot of censorship on Korean films and tried to make sure that they portrayed Korean society in a socially acceptable way because they were afraid that movies were influencing Korean citizens um, in, in, the bat, in the wrong way. They were also... Um, Put a lot of restrictions on, on uh, Hollywood films that were allowed into Korea. There had to be a certain quotas and stuff like that. But all of a sudden, that relaxed with a new regime that took over in Korea in, in like 1999 or something. And it took a couple of years. But in 2003, there were three really remarkable uh, Korean films. There was Old Boy, mm-hmm. uh, Park Chan Wook, and then there was uh, Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. And then what was the third one? Um, let's see. Another really important Korean film that year. 
Memories of Murder, Memories of Murder, which is, in, have you, I'm sure you've seen that, Craig, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in, one of the best um, thrillers of the past decade, one of the best crime thrillers of the past decade, I think. Every few years there seems to be, I don't know, I think it's often inspired by the Cannes Film Festival, but there seems to be like a mini obsession with a certain um, part yeah. of the world's films. And 2003 was definitely right in the middle of this this explosion of people's excitement about Korean cinema, at least yeah. in the West. I mean, Korean mm-hmm. cinema, they've been making movies um, on par with with many other countries since the 50s, but nobody knew it because they, we mm-hmm. weren't seeing them out. We weren't seeing them outside of their country. Exactly. That's what I. That's what I tried to say. That there was a golden age of Korean film, and then, because the, there was an original version. Was, Sasha, you know, Housemaid, right? That, that oh, you yeah. saw in, in Ken. How you liked the remake of that so much? But there was an original movie uh, called Housemaid in the 1950s or 60s that was is considered like the best Korean film ever made. Wow! And it's is amazing. And so the Korean film in the 50s and 60s was just something really special. But as you say, Craig, people were unaware of it because it, they weren't. There wasn't the festival attention that the movies, the international movies, got at that time. And also, it takes something like, and I think you're absolutely right about the Cannes Film Festival. I think it was in 2003 or 2002 when um, a couple of Korean films won won the top prizes in Cannes that year. Once again, the Cannes Film Festival setting the bar for foreign cinema. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think yeah. it was also the year, I don't know a lot about this, but I'm going to guess that it was also kind of the time and the era when the the Japanese horror uh, genre really took off too because the grudge came out this mm-hmm. year, the J- Japanese version of The Grudge, and, and these really hardcore Japanese horror films were... were J-horror. Yeah. Oh, that's what they call it, J-horror? Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. See see how I don't know things? Um, this was sadly also the year of Jiggly with um, Ben Affleck oh. and J-Lo, and it was Jen Law, or fucking hell, J-Lo. She was the original J-something. J-Lo and Ben, and they were the original Benefer. So I guess this is the era where the celebrity couple kind of took on a whole different level. And it was also the year that he made Daredevil with Jennifer Garner. So he met his wife, future wife, and uh, his almost ruined his career that same year. And then now... Two terrible movies. He's become Mr. Uh... And, you know, this was this was the year of 21 Grams. Um, Sean Penn... One for Mystic River, but he also made 21 Grams that year. And Naomi Watts is incredible in that. And Benicio Del Toro. Did it get any Oscar nominations? It, it got a bunch. Yeah. Oh, it did? Okay. At least for acting. Oh, great. All right. Well, that's a movie that I really love the performances, but I never, ever want to see that movie again. Yeah, no, I never want to see it again either. That was really hard to watch. Um, Good. 2003 was also the year that uh, our pal Ang Lee made Hulk, which uh, all the fanboys hated. And pretty much all the Ang Lee fans hated. But, you know, I watch it every now and again. We were talking earlier before the recording started about superhero movies. And it, it's not a movie that makes anybody who loves superhero movies happy. And it kind of leaves wanting people who may have been fans of, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and, and his other films. But there's a lot that's really good about it and a lot that's so much better than a lot of other superhero movies. Mm. Um, but... Uh, it's not necessarily a movie that anybody needs to run out and see, but I just have an affection for it that kind of goes above its horrible reputation. I just Mm. wanted to point that out. Um, John Sayles made a movie, Casa de los Babies, with Daryl Hannah and Marcia Gay Harden. Just like every John Sayles movie that ever comes out, it was completely ignored. 
Yep. He comes out with a movie every year and nobody gives a shit. How sad is that? <laughs> nobody cares. It's so why. sad. You know, we should just emphasize the fact that it's so sad because he is really so remarkable. He's one of the great American film directors, I think, and he's completely uh, undervalued. One of the kings of independent cinema, too, back mm-hmm. before there was independent cinema. And then finally, Love Actually was this year. And Love Actually has taken on a huge, you know, has become very, very well remembered and and watched every year because of Christmas. Because it's a wonderful story, uh, a wonderful film about love. It's sappy as hell, but it wears its sappiness on its sleeve and it, it means to be sappy, you know. Um, and it's it's you know it's a great movie. It's probably one of the few from this year that people still watch with regularity. You know, or maybe Return of the King they do, and maybe Lost in Translation. But you can't deny the power of Richard Curtis's Love Actually. You just can't. Um, this was also the year of A Mighty Wind, Christopher Guest's uh, mockumentary, A Mighty about Wind. the folk scene. Mm. Harry Shearer, sort of reuniting the Spinal Tap crew for that. Um, this is the movie that uh, Catherine O'Hara was, I think Catherine O'Hara was rumored to be getting an Oscar nomination for, but didn't. And then that then gets lampooned in, in um, For Your Consideration, mm-hmm. <laughs> where she comes really close to getting a nomination, and of course she doesn't. So that's in the great. movie. In yeah, the movie. It's in the positive yeah. movie, yeah. I know everybody loves Love Actually around the holidays, but my favorite holiday movie also came out in 2003, Bad Santa, which was, uh, I don't know if they wrote the original screenplay or if they helped patch up an existing screenplay, but it's, uh, they're not credited, but uh, the Coen brothers worked on it, and it's Billy Bob Thornton as the world's worst Santa Claus, (laughs) and I I love it dearly, and it just makes me pee my pants with laughter every year. Oh, God, I got to watch that. I've never actually. It, seen it's it. people who are not cynical hate it because they want Christmas to be this nice, happy thing, and it's basically, on one hand, it takes a big crap on Christmas, but at the same time, it sort of rehabilitates the real spirit of Christmas in a lot of weird ways. Hmm. And the director has a great reputation. He directed Crumb, that um, that uh, documentary about um, the the cartoonist. Um, from oh, and he directed uh, Ghost World and yep. this and Art School Confidential was pretty funny. Terry Zwigoff, Zwigoff. Terry Zwigoff, there you Terry's go. Terry God, I love Crumb. I just love that movie with the, with the passion. So good. Crumb, you mean? Crumb, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I do too. Mm-hmm. And it's one of Ebert's favorites. That's great. Ebert, I think Ebert did the uh, director's I mean, commentary for that. I mean, he not the director's commentary, but the commentary track for that, I think. If I remember correctly, Ebert did the commentary for that. All right, we'll do box office, which was, this was one of the years that Lord of the Rings Return of the King won Best Picture and topped the box office with a worldwide gross of $1 billion. Um, I think that's $1 because if it's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe that's correct. Yes. That's nine zeros for those of you keeping the score at home. <laughs> Finding Nemo <laughs> was number two. Totally, fully respectable. Matrix Reloaded. Okay, fine. Pirates of the Caribbean. Curse of the Black Pearl. Uh, okay, we're getting into sequels. That's fine. Bruce Almighty. The Last Samurai. Oh, The Last Samurai. Wasn't that with Tom Cruise? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was that was another one of those people thought was going to head into the Oscar race and then just didn't. Like the door yeah, was shut. Yeah, that was on back it. when people still took Edward Zwick seriously. Yeah. Well, they, they wanted to take him seriously, if I remember, but they didn't. They they really right. they mounted a huge campaign for that movie, and one of the biggest Oscar campaigns of that year was The Last Samurai. Was Did he involved in uh, that television show Thirty Something? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, he is. Was he? Yeah. yeah, he was. Yeah. Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, The Matrix Revolutions, X2, and Bad Boys 2. There's your sequel-soaked, uh, for the most part, top ten. Mm-hmm. So. And can I just say too, Dad? We said it. We talked about it at the beginning of the podcast. I don't know if that. I don't know if that part is going to make get in or not. We about the number of Oscars that the Lord of the Rings: Return of the King won. It won eleven Oscars, so it tied Ben Hur and it tied Titanic. Then you have movies that have won nine Oscars: are Gone with the Wind and, and Gigi and The English Patient and The Last Emperor. Eight Oscars, The Best Years of Our Lives, From Here to Eternity, My Fair Lady, Gandhi, and Amadeus, Slumdog Millionaire. You know, you look at these movies that have won the most Oscars, more Oscars than any other movie, and you, I would not put any of them in the top 100 movies, uh, American movies of all time. Hmm. You know, so that says something strange about the Oscars, that these, yeah. these movies, the Oscars thing, have, have, given, have, have just covered them up in Oscars, just, just, just larded the Oscars all over them. And when you look back on them, they're problematic movies, all of them, and in different ways. You know, it's, I mean, I, I, I can understand why they won. You can understand certainly why Titanic won and why Ben-Hur won, because they just they hit all of, they, put, they, hit all, they touch all the buttons along the way in every category. And, but I also do think that it has something to do with the fact that, that it was relatively weak years. Not, not only, not, yes, maybe not, maybe not, maybe that, not so yeah. much weak years, but a weak field of nominees. Right, you know? especially in the techs. And, and the yeah. thing is, is that these movies win so many Oscars because they're so exceptional in the techs. And mm-hmm. that, and that they win because the people like the movies, but they also win because um, because of that. But Slumdog Millionaire, they just loved that movie. It didn't matter what it did, tech wise. I know, it made them feel good. We loved it too until like Oscar night, and then Oscar night we just got sicker and sicker of it. Every every time that it would win an Oscar, I just liked it a little bit less. <laughs> it's such a sweet movie, though. It, really it is, is sweet. I mean, I and I and I really loved Danny Boyle, you know, and I was really happy for him, and I was really happy for all those kids and everything. But it just like it just left a bad taste in my mouth at all the end of the kids. evening. <laughs> those kids that they dragged out of the slum and then threw them right back into the slum after the movie was over. <laughs> I loved all the news stories that would come out for like two years after that about the little girls still living in squalor. And it's like, come on, filmmakers, couldn't you just like toss her a sandwich or something? It I mean, was so bad. Well, that was so bad, that whole thing, that after effect of that movie. And it happened total, immediately, didn't it? It yes. happened like like the day after the Oscars, they were already talking about that. That was a be careful what you wish for a situation because that movie never really thought it was going to be as big as it turned out to be. It just right. was winning. This was the year that right. David Carr... Well, no, we're not to 2008 yet. Never mind. So there's no point in talking about that. But I was going to say that's that's the thing that finally ended his Oscar blogging career was Slumdog Millionaire because it was just winning everything. When it won the SAG Ensemble, it was just people were just like, oh, my God, come on, really? It was just like it won everything, everything. That it, what do you mean it ended his, his career? He thought he it, gave was, up on it? it was not because it was a bad movie, but because it was the most boring thing to sit there and try and write okay. for three or four months about an Oscar yeah. season that just had one movie that kept winning everything. Right. And that was to him the most mind numbing, boring, useless thing you could do because there was nothing you could write about that year. Nothing. It was like it just it started winning and it didn't stop. I remember talking to him right before the Oscar race. It was like right around Toronto, and I said, he said, so what's happening? And I'm like, well, Slumdog Millionaire is about to start winning, and it's not going to stop. 
just gonna win, and it did. It won everything. So it was a it was a kind of a nightmarish year that way. But you know, when you get stuck in a year like that, you know, and you have to write about stuff, you have to be, especially for the New York Times, and he had to be the carpetbagger. You know, mm-hmm. not a lot to write about. Oh, Slumdog Millionaire is such a great movie. Yep, it won again. It won again. There it goes. It won again. It won again. That- that just, that just, I mean, I just really don't like sweep years. When a, when a movie starts winning, I, I think the maximum that I like for a movie to win is maybe six Oscars. When it starts to win seven or eight or nine or ten Oscars, I really I turn against it. You know, I just, I, I just, this doesn't seem fair to the other films because it just, it just, it just covers, it just obliterates everything else, and it makes the entire year make it look like it's about one movie when we know better. Right. That was sort of what I meant not to drag it up again, but. That was the thing that bugged me a little bit about Gravity was like, you know, I'm happy for it that it won all those those Oscars, but it's sort of like really, you know, it couldn't spread the wealth just a tiny bit more with some of those categories. To Captain Phillips maybe for, you know. Yeah, or, something, yeah. right? Yeah. Did Gravity really need to win editing also? Right. But um, but when they like a movie, they really like it. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Wait till next year. <laughs> That's <It'll> right. <laughs> do it all over again. You've been listening to episode 62 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast, and we'll be back next week with another episode. The...